We're continuing our sermon series on Christmas through the eyes of the prophets. And you know, there are three prophets who are considered to be the major prophets. And those are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And last Sunday, we began by looking at Christmas through the eyes of Isaiah which revealed to us a message of hope and comfort for the trying days that we're going through, as well as a message of power and authority and truth and justice. And we closed last Sunday thinking again about how Ahaz, if he had believed God's promises, if he would have broken the alliance and called the nation to prayer and praise, how things might have been different. But the king continued in his unbelief. And the challenge that I proposed last Sunday for us this Christmas season was to consider how different things might be if we would stop right where we are, repent of our wrongs, and seek God by means of prayer and praise. Now next Sunday we're going to look at Ezekiel. But this morning we pause to consider what it is that Jeremiah saw. The Jewish rabbis called him the weeping prophet. And and not without cause or reason. His entire mission was to proclaim sorrow, destruction, and hardship for the people of God. And unfortunately for him, one thing that he did see was the temple burned to the ground. It's hard to imagine him not believing that his mission had failed. And yet, the late Francis Schaeffer identified Jeremiah as the quintessential, the ideal or the model prophet for this current postmodern age. In his book, Death in the City, Francis Schaeffer would write, Jeremiah provides us with an extended study of an error like our own, where men have turned away from God, and society has become post-Christian. You know, Jeremiah lived about 640 to 570 B.C., beginning to serve actually in the 13th year of King Josiah's reign. And his ministry would continue for 40 years during the reigns of five different kings of Judah. Josiah, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. The last king of Judah. And he would see the abrupt fall of the Assyrian Empire and the steady rise of the Babylonian dominance. And because of his doom-laden prophecies, Jeremiah was regarded as a fatalist and a defeatist. And should we be otherwise? We need prophets today more than at any other time in my life. Uh, So maybe this is a good place to remind ourselves as to what prophecy is all about. Remember, the best synonym for prophecy is not prediction. No, prophecy is about proclamation. More than 87% of the time in the Bible, 
According to one study, when prophet, prophecy, prophesying came up, it was about proclaiming the proclamation of God's Word to God's people regarding God's will as to how they and you and I, as God's people, should be living in the light of the future that belongs solely to God. You know, in this Christmas season, I don't want to be a gloom and doom preacher. And one of the passages from Jeremiah that you will find quoted in Matthew's Gospel that pertains to the events surrounding the birth of Jesus is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. The focal point for Matthew as he looks back to that prophecy is the murder of the male children in Bethlehem, two years and younger. Peter Paul Reuben captured that event in this painting that's titled The Massacre of the Innocents. For Matthew, the event is fulfillment of Jeremiah's words regarding the lamentation and weeping that was heard in Ramah. But in Jeremiah, it's Rachel weeping for her children. Ramah is where the Judean exiles, by the way, were gathered before they were deported to Babylon. It's a village five miles north of Jerusalem, near Ephraim, near the border, and it's on the road to Bethel. Many people believe that to be the site of Rachel's tomb because we're told that she was buried somewhere between Bethel and Bethlehem. And if you'll recall, Rachel died in sorrow. She died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. And so, according to Jeremiah, she figuratively continued to grieve as her descendants were carried into exile for their sins. And according to Matthew, Rachel's grief surfaces again in the area of Bethlehem when the children are brutally murdered at the command of Herod because of the unbelief of the Jews in rejecting their Messiah. But the Lord promised to bring about their repentance and restoration through a descendant of David. And the passage I've chosen for my focus today out of Jeremiah is actually repeated twice. I'll be reading from Jeremiah 33, 14 to 16. But the passage also appeared back in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. So let's go to God's Word. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up, spring up excuse me, for David. And she, he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. May I add God's blessings to our reading of His Word. The inspiration for what I'm going to share with you today comes uh, from a, a 2019 article that was written by Brian Chapel, And it was titled, Tinsel for Twigs. And... Uh, so today's sermon is going to be an object lesson. 
I want to begin with a question. What really makes Christmas meaningful to you? What images? What ornaments of cheer? You know, probably as much, if not more, than any Christmas season again in my lifetime, with all that's happening in our nation, we desperately want this season to cheer us up, don't we? So what images help us the most? Interestingly, when God spoke to the people of old through the prophet Jeremiah in order to cheer them up with the message of Christmas, it was not a tree He spoke of, nor its lights. He spoke of a branch. A branch with its lineage. Now, it's a rather peculiar image, at least in my mind, Because the prophet Jeremiah was already told by God and sent by God to Judah in order to let them know that they would be cut down by Babylon and due to their sin. And it was a message that Jeremiah hated to tell. Lord, send somebody else. Why me? And yet through his tears... A hope glistened in the image of the branch. And I believe that if we can truly understand that image, we can know some of the special cheer and grace that this season holds for all of the year, for all of our lives, even when our sin and failures would threaten to make us weep as well. Brian Chappell tells the story of how at the intersection of Clayton and Ballas Streets in St. Louis, there was a little tree growing, just a sprout, growing out of the concrete right there in the roadway. A mere twig that somehow had taken root in a crack. And he goes on to tell how shortly after he first noticed that twig growing in that intersection, it was Christmas time, And as they were uh, going from the mall back to the area of home and had to pass through that area, they once again saw that little tree. And uh, the interesting thing about the tree at that point was that somehow there was a piece of tinsel that had blown from some neighboring trash can maybe or uh, an outdoor display. But that piece of tinsel had become entwined in the branches. Now when I was growing up, if I'd have done what I just did, my mom would have been screaming and hollering at me because she believed it should be done like this. One piece over one needle at a time. Listen to Brian Chappell's words. The tinsel was really just a cast-off of the season. Yet its very presence signaled that it was Christmas again. The tinsel was a token of the time of year and all it represented. It was again time for rejoicing that the Christ child had been born. It was just tinsel 
But I thought it was so special that out of His creation that God had chosen to decorate this insignificant, ugly little sprout with a shred of tinsel. God had picked up that discarded sliver of silver and put it in the hair of an ugly twig to make it beautiful to Himself. A wonderful beacon for any of us who would notice. And though the branch was insignificant, it signaled the time of year and reminded of the child who came to save. Listen again to the word of God from Jeremiah. I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. This is a message of Christmas through the eyes of Jeremiah that somehow God provides tinsel for twigs. The ugly, the ignored, the despised of the world. He decorates with a special beauty. And this is the message that you and I need to be proclaiming, just as Jeremiah did. We need to be prophets, proclaiming God's Word as it directly impacts our world around us. We need to be proclaiming that when we feel ignored, when we feel ugly, when we feel despicable, God can provide tinsel for us too, as ugly despised little twigs that might have just grown up out of an intersection. Jeremiah's message in verse 15 is that God will fulfill the promise that He made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They were a divided kingdom at that time. That He would bring forth His own. That He would bring forth one who would do what is right and just in the eyes of the land. You see, what God is promising is the Messiah. And from where did the Messiah come? God says at the beginning of Jeremiah 33.15 that He will make this Messiah the one He calls a righteous branch sprout forth from David's line. Now, think about it. What was once a great kingdom of God What had become two kingdoms following Solomon's death was essentially no more. Israel had already been taken into captivity by the Assyrians and now with the destruction of Jerusalem being imminent by Nebuchadnezzar, the end was there before them. And I think the wording is important because it illustrates how God can use the insignificant and failed things of this world to accomplish His ends. The insignificant things of this world for wonderful purposes. And I think that's indicated in this image that Jeremiah calls to mind. That of a branch. And when Jeremiah speaks of the righteous branch... He's referring to an image that we looked at last Sunday. The earlier prophecy of Isaiah, where Isaiah declared in Isaiah 11, verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot or a twig from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. You see, as Jeremiah looks forward to what the nation will be, for all its present pride, all he sees is a stump. The nation will be an insignificant nothing. A joke 
a shame, a source of derision for the enemies of God's once great kingdom. And as Jeremiah is looking at that disaster, actually a joke to the nations around it, Jeremiah sees something else arising. A twig or a branch is going to sprout up just like that little tree from the crack of the intersection in St. Louis. It's going to sprout up and it's going to save Israel and rule once again with righteousness and justice. So whom is Jeremiah referring with this symbol? What is it that is bringing beauty to a seemingly worthless image? Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, is going to come from this stump of a nation because God can use the despised things of the world for His purpose. <coughs> Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that God uses the lowly things of this world and the things that are not, the things that are insignificant, to nullify the things that are, to display who He really is. God uses those things that we can't even imagine. A cracked vessel, a jar of clay for His glory. And that's how God works. Jesus, the King of the universe, is born as a... uh, Forgive me, but he's born as a spitting baby in a dirty stable in an obscure village called Bethlehem. Don't think that Mary didn't have to change his diapers. He was fully human. I know the song has this image of a, of a baby laying there not even crying as the cows are making their noises. But uh, you're wise and reasonable parents. Babies cry. They cry when they're hungry. They cry when their diaper's messed up. They cry when they feel alone and just want some cuddling. I don't know if you ever came across a book. Um, I used it significantly in my master's program when I was working on my degree in education at Indiana University. It's a little book called, it was by Robert Fulgham. Robert Fulgham. The book was titled, All I Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Fulgham ends a section on his seasonal cynicism about Christmas by saying this, What's the big deal about this infant in a manger thing? Babies and stables both stink. I've seen and been around both, and I know. Bethlehem is a pit, according to those who have been there. Now, we may not like those words, but they're true. God didn't pick the great things to glorify His Son. He used His Son to glorify the insignificant. Where did the three wise men go when they were searching for the king of whose star it was? They went to the palace. What did they find? Nothing. 
No. With His Son, God brought glory to Bethlehem and heaven to a stable. He used that which is insignificant and smelly and made it beautiful. So beautiful that we sing songs about about that manger and that stable. God drapes the beautiful glistening tinsel of His purpose on the most insignificant things. And so Christmas images remind us just how beautiful His designs can be for that which the world would reject. But there's another line from Byron Chapel's article that made me pause. If you stop and think about it, the promise to the people of Israel is all the more remarkable since their plight is a result of their own sin. Why were they being cut down? Because of their own rebellion. Listen to me. The failure to live up to some success or glory that we may have had at one point in our own lives and the failure to live up to some future potential is not somebody else's fault. It's our own fault. We're the ones who make those stupid decisions at times. And and yet God promises to bring from this unfaithful people a branch who is Christ the Lord. From their failure will come the Savior who will cover their sin. God promises to cover faithless Israel and Judah with unfailing love. And so here's a vital scriptural truth. The line from Byron Chapel. The presence of divine discipline is never an indication of the absence of divine love. I was just listening to probably one of the better known ministers of our brotherhood on Friday. His name, Ben Merrill. He's over 90 years old, still living and still preaching. In fact, he was over 70 years old when a church down in the St. Louis, Missouri area, Harvester Church, called him and asked him to be their senior minister. And they were struggling. And they became revived and became a live, vibrant church during the ministry of that 70-year-old man. And Ben Merrill said, I know a lot of people won't like hearing me say this, but it's hard for me to believe that this pandemic and the crisis in our nation are not things that we are going through as discipline. Think about it. God's used plagues before, hasn't He? Could it be that because of our sinfulness, things that we are allowing, things that we are supporting as a nation, the judgment hasn't come upon us? Yeah, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he weeps for the discipline that's going to come in the form of enemies who are going to chop down Israel. But with that punishment, 
Jeremiah sees God's continuing love and the promise of a future restoration with repentance. Even if our failure is the result of our sin, And even if we interpret our situation to be a revelation of God's punishment, we should never assume that God's love departs from us. I feel I really need to say this. It's easy for us to point to the youth and speak about their glowing failures. But there's much to tempt the mature as well as the young. The addictions, the lusts, the material possessions, even the adulteries that tempt us and trip us up can make us believe that somehow we have fallen away from God forever. And you may be considering your sin to have separated you from the potential of God's love. And you may consider your difficulty to be proof of God's punishment. But the message of Jeremiah is that though Judah, as well as you and I, even though Judah was deserving and experiencing punishment for the sin that was their own fault, God's people are loved by God. You say, well, how can God act this way? How can He be loving to those whose own actions have made them shameful? Well, did you see it in the text? It's right there in verse 16. Jeremiah 31, 16. Jeremiah says that when the branch comes, the nation represented by Judah and Jerusalem will be saved and it, it will be called the Lord our righteousness. So, to what does the it refer? You know, sometimes great Scripture truths, like the best Christmas gifts, come in the smallest packages. Jeremiah is making a crucial point with this little pronoun if. If you go back a few chapters to where I told you the same words are, are there again, back in Jeremiah 23, it's the promised Messiah who is called the Lord our righteousness. And now, it's the despised nation. You say, well, how can you say that? Well, because Jeremiah makes sure that he changes the gender of that little pronoun, it, because their words had gender. Masculine or feminine, no matter what it was, it had an ending. And Jeremiah changes the gender of that little pronoun, it, to feminine. Not masculine, the Messiah. Feminine, so that we can't mistake His point. The despicable nation will be saved and her name will be the Lord our righteousness. You see what's going on? The point that Jeremiah is making is that there's something totally new that's going to develop. And he begins with a phrase that's used over 15 times in Jeremiah, usually in the context of judgment. The days are coming. But in chapter 31, verses 34, the days that are coming involve a new covenant. 
And in 23 and 33, it involves a new name and a new nature. You see, God's plan was to give His own name to His people. What do we call ourselves? Christians. Followers of Christ. It sounds impossible that those people who are such a mix of sin and failure could somehow be special to God. But to tell them that they are, He gives them a wonderful name. He gives His people the name, The Lord is our righteousness. But He gives them even more than that. He he tells them He's going to make them shine with His glory. You see, He also gives them His nature. Again, what is that name? The Lord, our righteousness. You see, the branch that is to come, the Messiah that's called the Lord is our righteousness, He will provide the righteousness that the sinful people, a righteousness that I can't attain, I mean, there's no question in my mind that I can't earn my salvation. I know that on a daily basis. I wish I could get through a couple days in a row and say, man, I did good today. But I can't do that, can you? I mean, we make mistakes every day, don't we? We can't make ourselves righteous. Not a person sitting here this morning deserves to be saved. None of us. But it's not us. You see, it's the Lord. The Lord is our righteousness. I shared with you about how my mom would just get all over me when I didn't hang the tinsel on that tree, one little piece of tinsel at a time. She wanted not chaos, but she wanted beauty. She wanted that silver glistening. Isn't that what tinsel's supposed to look like? Silver. But it's really just tinfoil. It's not really what it's supposed to represent. And God represents us to the world by calling us by His name. But then He actually makes us what He calls us. We're no longer tinsel. He makes us shine with His glory. and makes us His own sons and daughters. You see, somehow, we need to come to the point where we can recognize that God allows us to bear His name and the nature of His own Son And if we truly realize that, how much better would the world be around us? Let me bring this to a conclusion.
The message of Jeremiah progressed from a call to repent and avert captivity to the certainty of captivity and a call to accept it as divine punishment and then to the punishment itself. A discipline that would lead to eventually to restoration. Over 15 times in the book of Jeremiah, he calls out, Behold, the days are coming. What days? Well, guess what? Seven times the expression New Covenant appears in the New Testament. And the New Covenant is even more frequently referred to by simply the term covenant with the context showing what's meant. All of these occurrences in the New Testament go back to Jeremiah 31 where God promises to Israel that He will initiate a new covenant. And in the midst of all the doom and despair, the tinsel of hope appears. And God characterizes this new covenant as not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Verse 32. No, this covenant will be written on their hearts. As Messiah, Jesus brings about a greater exodus and yet one that follows the pattern of the exodus from Egypt. Because of the redemption, Jesus provides the cup at His final Passover that was also meant for you and I. You see, when we partook of communion this morning, we were once again going through the symbolism that God has allowed us to be freed from slavery. Freed to carry His image. The promise that comes with the branch is the promise that you and I can know the Lord. It's not going to be a covenant on stone. It's going to be a covenant on our hearts and we can know Him from the least to the greatest. And He will forgive our iniquity and remember our sins no more. I can't give you any greater blessing than the blessing that Jeremiah saw. Let's pray.